All right, so we're ready to begin. Uh, we have reached session seven of our course on the Holy Family. Today we're going to talk about what has been popularly called the household codes. And if you don't know what that is, you actually do know what that is. You just have never called it the household codes before. So we'll get to that in just a, just a moment. Uh, the Lord be with you. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who has committed to thy holy church the care and nurture of thy people, enlighten with thy wisdom those who teach and those who learn, that rejoicing in the knowledge of thy truth, they may worship thee and serve thee from generation to generation, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, and so we begin. With a question, what are the household codes? And I'll let you guess who, the, who this is a picture of. And you're thinking St. Paul, but you're wrong. It's not St. Paul. It's somebody else. The household codes are instructions as to how members of a family or a household ought to behave towards one another. And we're talking from the ancient world, not just anywhere. Uh, St. Paul wrote three... or. Uh, Three versions of the household codes. You'll find them in Colossians chapter 3, verse 18 through 4, uh, verse 1. You'll find them in Ephesians 5, 21 through 6, 9. That's probably what I would say the most famous of the household codes and the household codes we're going to talk about today after a bit. And then one in Titus chapter 2, verse 1 through 10. And St. Peter wrote one in 1 Peter 2, 18 through 3, 7. Household codes... When we read the household codes in the New Testament, uh, oftentimes when people talk about New Testament Christianity or Christianity in general in terms of definitions of the family, they say, oh, this, uh, this, this miserable uh, statement about what wives should do and what husbands should do, you know, this, uh, this thing that we should surpass and, and leave behind, cast into the dustbin of history. Well, let's get some context here, first of all. First of all, when this was written in the first century in the New Testament, these were improvements by far, or even commentary on older codes that were known and were popular to the culture at the time. This is from Greco-Roman society. This is a picture here of Aristotle. So Aristotle wrote household codes of his own, that when St. Paul wrote household codes, those who knew Aristotle would say, this is way, way different. This is a totally different thing. And you'll see why, because Aristotle's household codes sound a little like this. Okay. It is first possible to discern the rule both of master and of statesman. The soul rules the body with the sway of a master. The intelligence rules the appetites with that of a statesman or a king and in these examples, it is manifest that it is natural and expedient for the body to be governed by the soul and for the emotional part to be governed by the intellect. Okay, so Plato would say that the soul has three elements. There is the rational part. There is the uh, irascible part, which is not irrational. It's angered easily. And this irascible part can be, can be steered either towards the rational or towards concupiscence, sinfulness. So you can be angry that you didn't get to eat all you could eat at the buffet. That would be uh, the irascible nature steered towards uh, the concupiscence. 
but the irascible nature could also be steered towards uh, a righteous indignation at injustice or something like that. But he's saying here that if you're, if you're to lower it down to two, there's a rational part and then there's an emotional part to be governed by the intellect when a person is rightly ordered in themselves. And so he extra- extrapolates from that to society, to the household. Again, the same holds good, says Aristotle, between man and the other animals. Tame animals are superior in their nature to wild animals. There's the intellect over the, over the, the uh, unruly body. Yet for all the former, it is advantageous to be ruled by man since this gives them security. Again, as between the sexes, the male is by nature superior and the female inferior, the male ruler and the female subject. Yee! <laughs> okay, Aristotle. But what I'm, the reason I'm pointing this out to you is that in Greco-Roman culture that St. Paul was writing, and this was the common understanding. Whoops. Um, not only that, also the same follows with slaves. Slaves for whom to be governed by this kind of authority is advantageous. It's better to be slaves. Uh, now, you know, slavery we were talking about in the 4th century B.C. is a different kind of slavery than what, what usually comes to mind in 21st century United States of America. But roughly the, the, the suggestion that he gives is that it's better for a slave to be a slave because he or she will appreciate being ruled. Ooh, I don't know, Aristotle. Greco-Roman household codes are based on the notion that men are rational, women are hysterical, and slaves love to be slaves. These are Aristotle's words. For he is by nature a slave who is capable of belonging to another, and that's why he so does belong. How do you know within yourself that you're capable of being owned by someone? I don't know. But this, is, this seems quite logical uh, in the 4th century, or 3rd century B.C. at least. And uh, this is what St. Paul is responding to when he writes, and think of how different this is. He writes to the Galatians, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You know, to us today, we hear that and we say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because our Western civilization has been built on this understanding. But when this was first written, that was a revolution. That was, oh my goodness, what in the world? How, how would that even work? What would you even, how would that even, uh, how would society even stand with an idea like that? St. Paul's household codes. Uh, the most famous is in Ephesians 5. Uh, And written in this chapter is everyone's favorite verse to hate. Wives, submit yourselves unto your husbands as unto the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Christ is the Savior of the body, not the husband is the Savior of the wife. Christ is the Savior of his body. Christ is the head of which the church is the body. And what St. Paul is saying is that the Holy Family is like Christ and the church. When you love to hate St. Paul, you'll hear only Aristotle in this. But when you're listening more closely, you first of all may ask the question, what happened to there is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, St. Paul, but we're all one in Christ? Well, uh, I will say read the four chapters preceding chapter 5 and you'll get a better understanding. 
there, is a, there is a manner in which, in our culture, we really understand this now, cherry-picking. Okay, you pick one phrase out of six chapters of an epistle and say, that's why I'm not a Christian, because of one phrase out of one epistle out of the New Testament. Um, let me say, you should do at the very least read that chapter. And I'll say just slightly less than that is read the whole epistle and see what is he even trying to say in this epistle altogether. Well, we're going to do it today. I'm not going to read the whole epistle, but we're going to give you the sense of what he's building towards when he gets to chapter 5, which is preceded by four chapters of some other stuff. What stuff? I forget. I don't know. Well, I'll remind you. Here we go. (laughs) Ephesians chapter 2. Wherefore, remember that ye being in times past Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision, Jews, Gentiles, in the flesh made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who were sometimes afar off are made nigh by the blood of Christ beginning with the idea that those that were diversely spread out all over the place are now being brought close to one another by the blood of Christ. He goes on, chapter 2, For he, Christ, is our peace, who hath made both one. See a theme? Starting in chapter 2, he has made the Jew and the Gentile one in himself, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace. I'm just saying, if you're reading chapter 5 and you're hearing about two made one, if you've cherry-picked it out of chapter 5, you will miss that he said two made one already in the epistle, chapter 2. He wasn't talking about male and female. He was talking about Jew and Gentile. This is Christ's work, breaking down middle walls of partitions so that two are made one. Okay? Um, he might reconcile the both in God by, uh, in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were far off and to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. There's a theme developing. Chapter 2. Chapter 3. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father, the great uh, prayer of St. Paul, unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, Sounds a lot like what he's going to talk about marriage in just a moment. May be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that she might be filled with all the fullness of God. Right at the center of the epistle to the Ephesians is this big prayer, big message that the essence of all of this is love. Okay? There's probably a lot to say in one class, but. Hang with me, okay? So we're here right at the center of Ephesians 3. And if you want to know where the real gist of a lot of things that are said in the Bible are, look for the middle passage of an epistle or a chapter or a section. The middle is usually where the real punch is. 
to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. Chapter 4. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation with which we are called, vocation, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love. Vocation, forbearing, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, because there is one body, one Spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Chapter 4. We've taken two. We've broken down a, a barrier between and we've made two one. We're about to take, in chapter 5, two for whom there is a barrier. We're about to break down the barrier and make the two one. But they're one in Christ. They're not one because they really like each other. They're not one because they have the same sense of humor. Okay, <laughs> you have the same sense of humor. She liked popcorn, I like popcorn. We have such a good time together. Let's get married. All right, okay. <laughs> but you, uh, please don't tell me that your marriage is based on popcorn or preferences. I prefer these kind of movies and so does he. We have so much fun. Okay, that's, that's a start. But that's not, you're not rooted and grounded in your preferences. You're rooted and grounded in love. And not just love, but Christ's love. Now we're talking about Christian marriage. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Remember here, uh, the beginning. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation. Does everyone have the exact same vocation? No. Does everyone have the same grace, given a measure of grace according to the gift of Christ? No, because in the next few verses here, he says, and he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, some teachers. What are we talking about? Diversity. There's a diversity of vocations. There's a whole bunch within the church. There's a bunch of different people that do all kinds of different things. For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, there's a diversity until we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, of whom there are not two or six or 25, but one. This is a theme that's, that's running throughout the book of Ephesians, and we're building up to a chapter on marriage and the relationship between a man and a woman. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man and to the measure and the stature of the fullness of a really neat relationship that has lots of fun. No, the unity of the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Good grief, that's a lot. And then you get to chapter 5. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as a dummy who with, a, with tunnel vision. Circumspectly means you can see all around you. You're wise. You understand what's going on, especially even with this chapter, Ephesians 5. Not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Wherefore, be not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. I will ask you, what is the spirit of the resistance to chapter 5, that favorite verse that we love to hate? Okay, wives, submit yourselves. Is this giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ? Not even close. 
Is this submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God? Not even close. So where are we going to get to uh, here when we get to the, the real meat of this? He says, wives, be subject to your husbands just as Christ loved the church. When you get the big picture of what he's saying, Aristotle doesn't know what he's talking about. We're going to give you a household code that is really good. Okay, and if you just turn to chapter 5, you missed what he's doing all together here. Christ in himself is taking down a barrier between Jew and Greek. He's taking out a barrier between slave and free. He's taking down a barrier between, between man and woman. And he's going to unite everyone in himself. And everyone is to be submitted one to another. It was right there in the few verses before. And then he says, wives, be subject to your husbands, just as Christ loved the church. If you're offended, I don't know what you're offended about. You're offended about the nature of your salvation in Christ, I suppose. Because right after that, he says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Oh, I'm sorry, I put the wrong verse there. Uh, in the one above. <laughs> wives, be subject to your husbands. Uh, it, the Christ loved the church should be in the next one. Uh, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Chapter 5, 22 through 24, 25 through 33. Speaking of the husband. And so in the context of this discussion about roles, we're really talking about diversity in the context of a larger picture of unity. He said to the church, there are a bunch of you. I know when you all get together, you don't agree, do you? In fact, some of you speak tongues and some of you don't. And some of you think you're hot stuff because you speak in tongues. And some of you think these people are crazy. I wish they weren't here. And the other side is saying, I wish they weren't here. <sighs> okay, if the two of you got your way, neither of you would be here. That's not what this is about. This is about, uh, here we've got some that speak in tongues, some that don't. Here we've got some that are slaves, some that are free. Some that are male, some that are female. And they come together and they're a part of one thing, the body of Christ. Christ is the head, we're the body. That's where this discussion of of the holy family and the household code uh, comes. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, sorry. I had a really funny thing there. Missed it. <laughs> and so in the context of these passages, we're talking about the unity of the church, the diversity of vocation. We're talking about submission one to the other. And we're talking about the centrality of Christ and the ultimate nature of everything the height, the depth, the width, the breadth of the love of Christ. Now that's sexist bigotry, right? <laughs> that's the joke, get it? Anyhow, in other words, if you want to take one verse out, all right, that's, that's uh, sort of a, oh, I don't know, a drive-by exegesis of Scripture. You drive by, you take the one shot, and then you run on and don't read the rest of the epistle. Uh, the epistle has got a very big idea and the Holy Family is right in the middle and he's, he's not encouraging you to say we need a prenuptial agreement and we need to divide this sucker 50-50 right down the middle and don't you tell me to do anything that you wouldn't do yourself. And <sighs> You're kind of missing it here. Um, and so now we find a very interesting thing in our current culture is that the holy family, the husband, the wife, and the child, are becoming more and more countercultural? That idea is countercultural. 
this ideal is increasingly despised in the preference of anything else. Anything else. Anything with that. And why is that? Okay? And our, our instinct is to say it's because of hatred. It's because of concupiscence. It's because of bigotry. It's because these people are determined and bent to destroy Western civilization. Or, my, my thought, or my generous thought, is that it's something much more philosophical than that. And we return to the question here of realism versus nominalism, which you're tired of, but it's, it's the truth. The Christian faith asserts that things have meaning in themselves, and especially here that the Holy Family has a meaning in itself. And you can't just reverse roles. You can't just uh, switch everything around, put it in a blender, and come out with the same thing. It doesn't work that way. This has a meaning in itself that is communicating to you about God. The Holy Family has a meaning in itself. In fact, the Holy Family is a key to understanding life and love and purpose and destiny and God and salvation. It's a love letter to you. Even if you don't participate in a perfect Holy Family, even if your experience has been a broken Holy Family, you can still get the message. The message is still coming through. The reason you weren't satisfied with the fact that your family was broken was because you wish you had a family that was together and that holy family, the ideal is still there. It's still there. Those who oppose the traditional family typically believe that the family is a construct that restricts love down to a minuscule parameter. In other words, uh, in, in an interesting way, the true belief is in love. But the idea is that this idea of the, the husband and the wife and the, and the child and everything being sort of uh, straight and narrow is a construct that can be deconstructed uh, because love is being restricted to some minuscule parameter. There's a parameter that's been imposed and we need to remove the imposition. And the idea, I think, is this. Nothing should restrict how love is sought out or experienced. Nothing should restrict. All such constructs are put in place to benefit some oppressor. Somebody somewhere is benefiting from this. Just look at Aristotle, okay? He didn't mention the word love in household codes of Aristotle, did he? No, he said, well, you know, the, the men are rational, the women are hysterical, so the men should rule the women. He didn't say anything about uh, submitting one to another in there, did he? <laughs> he didn't say anything about that. Um, and so the idea here is that, you know, this is what we need to get rid of, is this Aristotle kind of guy. He's, he's definitely... Uh, in in uh, encouraging oppression. And that, therefore, to restrict love in any way is to be unloving. That's a philosophy. That's a deeper philosophy beneath. And it's actually not, not that bad when you hear it, when you hear it closely. To restrict love is unloving. It actually sounds kind of right. And it sounds kind of right to much of the church these days. Much of the church hears that and says, yeah, to restrict love is unloving. To say that there's any kind of exclusion at all is to be, um, to be anti-Christ or to be anti-God because God is inclusive and Christ is inclusive. And um, that, that uh, we really need to shake up these old school traditional Christians because they clearly have not understood the New Testament. 
Somewhere in there, there's a really good intention. And that's why I'm saying, uh, before you uh, take up arms, just give it a second. Listen closer. And consistency in that idea uh, that, that restricting love is, is to be unloving, consistency would require that the traditional family would be included as just one of the many ways to know love. Okay? So there's some amount of charity given to, to a husband, wife, and a, and a, and a child but there's a little bit of a rolling of the eyes now. Oh, brother, you know, straight folks. And, and, and uh, husband and wife and, you know, Ozzy and Harriet and they're, you know, whatever. I don't even know who Ozzy and Harriet are. <laughs> Somebody knows. <laughs> I heard that once. It's, it's in Beetlejuice. Uh, I, I watch Beetlejuice. Anyway. Consistency, we'd also question. Now, this is what I'm really getting at. This is actually kind of the point of the whole course. So listen to this part, Okay. Consistency would also question, why is love real in that mentality? And I'm not asking that as a rhetorical or as a cruel question or something. Love is this north star upon which we all agree, but nothing else is a north star. There is nothing else directing us towards it. It's whatever you feel and whatever you desire, that is what you should pursue to this north star of love that we're all uh, that we all consistently believe in, and the current drive is to dissolve all structures in the name of love. And the people that have some structure remaining need to be educated that the structure should be dissolved in order for love to emerge. And so we're willing to dissolve language, family, doctrine, history, economics, mathematics, ethics, gender, everything you can possibly dissolve. And I believe that what's behind that, optimistically, is that love will reign after all of this. And it'll be such a love that we've never known before. A utopia will emerge. Okay? The belief is that when chaos has destroyed all order, we will have unbounded love. And I think it's logical to ask a question. Okay, here's the question. (laughs) Will chaos destroy everything in the name of love and yet leave love untouched in the end? Why would you believe that? Why wouldn't you then take the deconstruction and deconstruct love itself so that love doesn't mean anything anymore and there's nothing around it to support it any longer and then chaos is... I was almost going to have a picture of a black hole here. But uh, I've got a picture of rust, anyway. Is it a, when, when we rust all of the surface away, is there a core in the center that won't also rust and de- decay in the... What would you say? The, the trajectory of this philosophy. I believe... I would like to say that the church can return to the belief that actually the structures that the church puts around love are like the love letter of God. He's sending a love letter to us and he put it in this structure and said, read the letter. No, 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 don't try to change the letter. Just read the letter, read it carefully, study it, and you'll see that I've actually given you a map for how to get to me or how to experience me or how to know me. This is what I'm like. I'm like this. Okay? It's part of... All of creation around us, it's part of the New Testament, it's part of the Old Testament, it's everywhere, okay? It's everywhere. And I mean, even in driving down the right side of the road, not the left side, it's there. There's a truth. 
You can think you're in England and be convinced that you should drive down the left side of the road. You will get in a head-on collision and reality will return. You can say, I am a robot. I need no longer to eat. Reality will return when you starve. Okay? There are, uh, I, I believe in the end we're all realists, but there's a little game going on here. But what, what I'm saying is our response is not to say, you know, kill them all, let God sort them out. Okay, no, no. With much of the world we agree. And you see how this thing, God is love? You could read it the other way around too, couldn't you? We generally agree that love is at the heart of all reality. Love is the highest ideal for our existence. The Beatles would sing... All you need is love. And it's not that far from the truth. It's in there. It's kind of right. It's pretty right. Uh, if, you, if you had uh, no way of knowing what God was like, that's a pretty good conclusion to finally come to. We even say of God that he is love. God is love. But the world says love is God. And you have to think about that one for a little bit. Put the tea bag in the hot water and let that steep for a second. Love is God, and that therefore the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to life. Because whatever you experience as love is God. That's what we worship. It's a broad gate and a wide path. Everyone can participate in God in this way because anything you know of as love is God. God. When you reverse it and put it back the way it was before, God is love. The Christian faith says God is love and therefore the gate is narrow and the way to life is straight. In fact, Jesus says that. And he and, and you have to think about it for a second. If love is God, then any way you experience love is your religious experience of God. And I think that's where the culture is heading. And the church sometimes is heading that way because it has both the right words, three words, is, God, and love are all in there. It's got to be right. I think when you reverse it and say the way that, uh, that our New Testament speaks about it, God is love, you're going to have a different kind of message, which is that God has sent to us a message about himself, and he sent it to us through love. And he's shown us how to experience love. And he's shown us a structure through which we may approach him. He's actually given us the sacraments, which you can easily say is a structure. He's given us a structure, a sacramental life. He's given us the picture of the Holy Family. He's given us a way to exist in this life, which is a structure that leads to him. God is love. And so we better find out what he told us about love so we get to him. I think that's the big picture. Um, am I wrong? I don't know. Do you like it? I, I, I like it. If I'm wrong, uh, I don't think I'm wrong. So there you go. <laughs> so when we talk about the household codes, then we're back to this picture of the Holy Family. The Holy Family and the household codes are not just an old-timey rule from a bygone era that ought to be cast into the dustbin of history because we're progressing. You know, we're getting on to the newer stages. Uh, we leave all that stuff in the past. 
That is not actually what the Holy Family is, is all about. And you can tell because it keeps coming up. Every single one of you was born of a woman. Sorry. Um, every one of those women that you were born of met a man somewhere. Sorry. <laughs> Even if you were born in a Petri dish uh, with in vitro fertilization or something like that, you're still out from a man and a woman. That's just the way that he, that's the construct that he's, that he's created us into. In fact, they're not just for the dustbin of history. They're ever new. These are at the heart of God's message directing us towards himself through love. It's part of the straight and narrow way that leads to life. Joseph, Mary, Jesus. Have you ever, have you ever heard this, the statement, the medium is the message? Okay. So we're being communicated to by the Holy Family as a medium of the message, right? The message is the Holy Family He's saying men and women come together at the center of male and female coming together is Christ and fruitfulness and love because God is love and he is God. He's right there between the union of man and woman, Christ-centered, visually, literally, metaphorically, sacramentally, Everything you can possibly think of. Do we get closer to God by dissolving all of this and pushing all these messages away and throwing them into the dustbin and recreating in our own image, according to our own ideas, something new? Probably not. It's never worked before. Uh, It's probably not going to work again. Uh, That's the end of this session on the household codes. There's a lot of material there. and Maybe you have some thoughts or ideas about Uh, ancient Greco-Roman household codes versus St. Paul's household codes, St. Peter's. Uh, Applying all of this, you know, uh, ancient philosophy and really New Testament ideology, the message of God to us in a modern age where I think the, uh, the belief in love is there if we're not too cynical but the understanding is, is utterly different. Any thoughts on that? If I talk to you into neutral? There we go. Mark. Yeah, you know, this equivocation with the terms love and hate. You know, we see these bumper stickers, hate is not a family value. Right. And you know, but if you're going to be loving, you're going to have to hate infidelity. You it's know? true. So yes, hate is a family value. Oh, so my... So I, I, I deeply sighed. I thought, well, yeah, you have, to, you have to have a sentence that goes under that. What I mean by hate is, well, I'll tell you this. My, my, I had a friend once who uh, contracted a rare disease when he was in Asia and wound up in a hospital in Malaysia where the doctors are so polite that they won't tell you what's wrong with you. And so he was very close to death, but they thought that would be impolite to inform him of how close to death he was. So they kept telling him he was fine while they were treating him in the most serious of the most serious uh, life-threatening condition. They just kept telling him, oh, you're doing very well, very well. Yes. Oh, every day better, every day better. In other words, uh, to say, oh, we're doing very fine, very fine. Every day we're doing better. We're doing better than we ever were before is not actually a loving thing to do. It may be polite, 
But in the end, I don't know about the word hate. I don't know. You'll have to... I'll stroke the beard on that one. <laughs> I, well, I, I see what you're saying, though. I mean, if, if, a, if a wife is going to say, or a husband is going to say, today I feel that uh, this person I've run into, I relate to them more than I've ever related to my spouse, and surely they'll understand if I have an affair with this person. I'll go home and I'll explain to them it's okay, because the gate is wide, the, the, the broad, broad is the path, uh, let's just have an open marriage because that's what love is to me. <sighs> um, never worked before and it's probably not going to work again. She's probably not going to take that. In other words, the fact that that will then destroy that family, it should be hated that that idea came in. That's what you're saying, right? The hating, hating the concept and the idea right. know, not the person. Oh, of course, I see. Yeah, yeah. Any other thoughts or ideas? Yes, sir? two verses of like the the wife submitting to the husband uh-huh. but the husband loving the wife as Christ loves the church and uh, Christ as the head of the church we talked about this before the idea that no one part of the body is less than the other right. in the context of the church yeah. so well a husband it's the same for the family because the family is like a little church and the husband may be the head that does not mean that the wife is any less than the husband, or the husband is any more than the wife. Right. Serve different roles. Vocations, even. Callings. Um, and I, I'm just saying, when you read Ephesians, good point. When you read Ephesians, the whole epistle is about difference of vocation, but unity uh, in the end. And so, uh, you know, you could say, well, it says wives submit to your husbands. Whenever I do premarital counseling, I always say, it'll never come to this. If, you're, if your marriage is, is, uh, if your marriage is, a, is a godly marriage, I, I can't think of a time when I tried to pull rank on Sarah and said, well, it actually doesn't matter what you want. Um, because it says right here in Ephesians. So, you know... I don't know what you, she's sitting right in that room over there. <laughs> oh, but this is being recorded. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, I'll, I would say in premarital counseling, if you if you if it ever comes to pulling rank, you, you've kind of missed the, <laughs> you missed the idea here. You missed the idea. Uh, it, it's more like if there was a bullet thrown at the family, the father jumps in front of the bullet and takes it first. It's kind of like that. I've never said it that way, but that's kind of on. That, that's a little bit more of what we're talking about. Christ gives himself for the sake of the life of the church. And if you think that's oppressive, I don't know what to tell you. Um, well, then we're under a terrible oppressive, oppressive Christ who died for us for our sake. I, we'll have to get the dictionary out and rewrite the word oppressive because that's not oppression. That's divine loves and... Uh, and sacrificial love. That's what the husband's supposed to do. Not pull rank on each other, on, on the wife. Anyway, it's certain disaster, certain death if you try it anyway. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Chris. Well, but, well, that's exactly what St. Paul said. Right. I don't think he was thinking about jumping in front of a bullet, but right. nobody reads the sentence to the very end. Right. Husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And when you stop and think, how did Christ love the church? And how did he give himself up? You look at the cross and you say, okay, that's a heavy deal. Right. That's, that's 
That's not my will, but thine be done, which is what he said earlier in the letter, submissive one to another. And what I'm saying of this is that I don't even believe that St. Paul wrote this letter so that we would have better marriages. I think he was saying, this is a message that's being sent to you about God and about how Christ has intervened in this world. And he's built it right into something you can't get away from, your family. Can't get away from it. And it doesn't even matter. This is the indestructible nature of the good news of the gospel. It doesn't even matter if your father's a jerk. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You'll still get the message. If your family is perfect, you'll get the message. If your family's broken, you'll get the message. It's everywhere. It's in everything. You can't get away from it. Uh, it's like the, the, uh, the notion of a creator how can you deny the notion of creation? You're living in creation as a creation, saying there is no creator. You could say it, I guess. I mean, you could repeat it to yourself and create a mantra and speak it into the mirror, but it's, it's nonsense. <laughs> so what I'm saying is, what St. Paul uh, is indicating to us is the way you've been created and the way that Adam and Eve originally were in the garden and the way that Christ came to intervene into our sorry estate, as, uh, as uh, St. Athanasius would say, is the message. It's the message. It's part of it. We have to stop now. The Holy Family. It's pretty good, right? <laughs> Anyhow, we've got one more session next Sunday, and we're going to take a break for the summer. But uh, thank you all. God bless. Awesome.